This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Think Tank advocates U.S. HPC leadership. And DOE refines exascale timeline. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening into another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. This Week in HPC is distributed in partnership with our friends at top500.org. Michael, we've got a lot going on in U.S. supercomputing this week in HPC, starting with a paper that came out from a think tank called ITIF, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, entitled The Vital Importance of High-Performance Computing to U.S. Competitiveness. Yeah, ITIF, uh, some uh, think tank I wasn't uh, that familiar with. I, they do a lot of work on the, the innovation side, uh, the tech innovation side of policymaking in, in D.C. here, and they've come out with this report that focuses on HPC and particularly with uh, the leadership they think the U.S. should retain uh, for a lot of reasons that they, they outline in this very long and detailed report. It is a long and detailed report, and you and I have both read through it. Now, the majority of the report seems to be uh, you know, stuff that we've read before. We who are familiar with the industry have read before about, hey, supercomputing is great. It's used in all of these ways. It's totally important. It, it bolsters innovation. It's good for industry. And here's why it's good for the country. Right. So why do we need another one of these reports? Well, it, it then gets down to the, the brass tacks of it has some very specific recommendations with respect to the uh, NCSI initiative for U.S. supercomputing. Right. I mean, part of those recommendations are funding that initiative. We've talked about that before. NCSI is, is something initiated by this administration, uh, but it's not funded, and it's not clear exactly at this point how that's going to move forward to, to fund things like uh, extreme-scale systems, particularly exascale systems, and HPC technology in general for uh, at the federal government level. But yeah, this is uh, this makes sort of a broad brush approach to why it is important that the U.S. retains HPC leadership, and it sort of conflates a couple of things that uh, are still a little bit controversial. I mean, the, there's sort of the defense and and sort of mission critical government side of HPC, where you sort of need the the latest and greatest for things like uh, nuclear weapon simulations and and different other defense areas. They don't mention. Um, you know, the intent, intelligence area in that much detail, but certainly you need it there where you maintain that leadership. But they also conflate it with a lot of the commercial HPC. They talk about, you know, transportation, medicine, finance, uh, oil and gas, that sort of thing, where you typically don't think that those areas necessarily have cutting-edge HPC, but they sort of think that also is an important element, the, the commercial side of it is why the U.S. needs to maintain this leadership. Yeah, so I mean you mentioned all the different commercial aspects of HPC and you know let's be clear industry uses HPC in this country in other countries and and this isn't new if I've got one big nit to pick I you know I go there you know, there's they try to imply that all of a sudden industry is using computing that's been a popular refrain ever since I've been in this industry you know in the right. Early 1990s, it was like all of a sudden industry is using HPC, and it wasn't true then either in the sense that industry had already been using HPC. We've had decades of usage by oil and gas and manufacturing and finance and, and pharmaceuticals. Uh, it keeps 
keeps evolving and the price performance needle keeps moving and commercial growth has outpaced public sector growth for the last several years and continues to do so in our forecast. So in that sense, it does continue. It is spreading in industry faster than it's spreading in government or academic usage, but it's by no means new. Right. And I think even the other point, the leadership part of this equation that the U.S. has to have leadership to to make our commercial interests that use HPC leaders, I, I think is, is tenuous at best. I mean, most of these commercial companies aren't using HPC at the extreme scale. They're not, they're not invested in that other than, as the report does point out, they sometimes partner with national labs to get access to, to much larger scale systems than they could maintain internally. But most commercial HPC computing is done with smaller systems that don't depend on what you would call leadership class systems, they could have easily bought these systems from, say, Lenovo or or Bull even or, or anybody, and they would still be just as happy and be just as productive and competitive in their own uh, domains. Um, so in a way, that conflation with uh, defense and commercial interest, I think, is is a bit tenuous, and uh, but it, it's, it's repeated a lot. It's, they're not the first people to make this, but I think it's a good good way to get policymakers to pay attention to this, to think that HPC leadership will somehow translate to some um, like manufacturing leadership or, um, you know, pharmaceutical leadership or something else that's on the commercial realm. I just think it's, it's, it's sort of a stretch to, to sort of connect those dots. Well, it's tenuous at the low end, to be sure. Yeah. And, you know, if one manufacturer gets gains in the low end in the United States, are they necessarily making those gains at the expense of a foreign competitor or is it at the expense of a domestic competitor, right? right. You know, some of this can be local, too. At the high end, though, you know, there is a connection, and we've shown that already in the Solve report that came out from the U.S. Council on Competitiveness that we did some work on there. That came out a little more than a year ago, and a lot of the statistics from Solve were repeated in uh, this report as some background material, and, and I think that's appropriate. It does, uh, you know, bring up the question of why we we need another report, and you know, I, and and what were some of the the differences here? I I was a little disappointed. More of the software findings didn't get echoed here. This report kind of echoed more of the hardware statements about you know the the uh, the challenges with regards to faster uh, processing and power consumption and you know the limitations of CMOS they were all very hardware focused arguments and and software was given only a uh, a, a cursory quote uh, back to the solve report about the importance of software and then it was pretty quickly ignored but you know that was all kind of part and parcel with my other question is where did, where did this report come from who asked for it what what do we need it for and i think there are some clues in that as we start getting closer to the recommendations right and and they do make specific recommendations it's not just an advocacy report i mean they talk about um you know, they're holding hearings for the National Supercomputing Initiative to, to sort of organize this strategy going forward and even recommending uh, a numeric figure on the program uh, as far as allocating funds for the NSCI is $325 million per year, at least $325 million per year going forward yep. uh, to, to fund these initiatives. Um, 
And, and that part I'm really good with, right? Because when NCSI came out, we were quick on this podcast to say, well, all right, we've heard this before, but don't get too excited as long as it's un, an unfunded initiative. Right. And we've had unfunded initiatives before, too. This report, one of the primary purposes uh, is stated straight out that Congress should hold hearings, that they need to allocate funding, and here's a funding number that we ought to put on this. And, and that I'm in favor of. If you're going to have the initiative, it doesn't mean anything unless there's money behind it. Right, and the, but the, digging a little deeper into the recommendations, they have more specific ones, and it's mainly on the commercial side, getting the uh, making the tr- technology transfer from uh, sort of the national labs to commercial activities uh, more more of a standard approach, actually funding the manufacturing extension partnership or or emphasizing that relationship, sort of getting that public partnership. Uh, uh, connection uh, more heavily uh, standardized and and supported so that the technology at the high end gets transferred to the commercial entities here and that's that's part of their argument too that that maintaining that leadership at the high end does transfer down or can transfer down and so they're making those specific recommendations and then they make sort of one sort of out of the blue recommendation about the uh, the export restrictions that we've we've talked about on this program before of the of some of the HPC technology they they recommend that they uh, evaluate that a lot more closely and and not sort of loosen up the um, the export restrictions that we've seen go into effect and just restrict them to maybe the, the latest cutting edge technology and letting the the export of, of what you might call standard HPC or, or maybe even uh, somewhat obsolete HPC uh, be uh, be easy to do with even even the countries like China and, and uh, some of our other uh, nations that, that we do export that technology to. I don't think they're referring to obsolete technology at all. I think the key word you said there was standard. If you look at exactly what it says in the executive summary, it's that Congress should, quote, reform export control regulations to match the reality of current high-performance computing systems. And then when you get into the text of the report, they seem to be defining things as if something's built out of standard components, it shouldn't be subject to export control, which seems to me to be directly talking about the export restrictions that are keeping Intel from sending their processors to China for the Chinese supercomputer systems, which just more recently became subject to more stringent export control. Right. That was the big story which we covered when when that happened, and and that would seem to point to a criticism of of that that policy. And certainly, uh, you know, Intel would would like that, but it. I mean, it's hard to say what would become a standard part. Is just because it's released commercially, does that become standard? If it's first generation, or do you have to like say? I mean, what? I'm not exactly sure what they're what they're advocating or what they're recommending here as far as what could be exported or not. Because when the original uh, restriction was put into effect against Intel, they were basically saying you couldn't let the latest Xeon Phi chips go out to. China because it was uh, it was critical technology and, and we didn't want to do that to, a, to with somebody like China, so I'm not sure how you would tighten up those uh, those restrictions any more than they already have, other than going back you know saying one generation back from uh, your latest chip or your latest uh, technology component is, is okay to to export, but not maybe the uh, the current version. I'm not sure if if they've even made that very clear here. 
Yeah, that's not clear, and nor is it clear to me if, if there's any particular funding behind this report. There aren't any sponsors of the report listed. This comes out of a out of a of a DC think tank. I suppose it's possible it was funded by a government grant. If so, I'd I'd like to know you know what grant, what government agency paid for it. If it's got corporate funding, I think it's even more important to know. You know, with what corporations, or singular or plural, uh, funded the report? The whole thing does have, to me, a little bit of an intel slant in terms of the focus on processor technologies as the key for moving forward uh, toward exascale, and in, even in areas like the evolution of CMOS and power consumption uh, you know, above some of the other areas. I don't think it sounds as much like uh, you know a company like IBM because there's really no talk of things like cognitive computing which would be you know part of the a, a more IBM standard boilerplate right. but that doesn't mean that that Intel necessarily funded the whole thing but it, it does read a little more like an Intel vision than it does a, another company's yeah it does that was my impression too and 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 like you yeah, I'm not sure where, where that came from I mean there I mean it's possible there's there's just a lot of Intel think in the industry because that company does dominate a lot of areas of high performance computing now, so it sort of filters out into into people's minds that are not necessarily related to Intel, just in the government and other entities and analyst groups even that that talk about this space. Uh, some of the vernacular and and some of the approaches just do permeate the the space in general. And you know, Intel is a dominant player, and that that just naturally happens. But it would be nice to know. You know what the influences were, uh, like he speculated. It, it could have just been a, a government contract, but it seems like they would have mentioned that. It's it's a little bit mysterious for a paper that is going to be probably passed around uh, into government agencies and and congressional staffs and and even the administration um, uh, without knowing sort of the source of uh, the impetus behind this. Now, there are copious endnotes, and the, the authors have drawn research from many different sources, including the Council on Competitiveness. There's some articles that you wrote back when you were in HPC Wire, as well as current editors uh, from other publications. So, yep. you know, you and I are in there in various places, and it's, it's a well-researched piece. It, it does just leave those couple of questions. It doesn't mean I quibble with uh, all of the recommendations, though. The idea of having congressional hearings on the NCSI is paramount to the the whole point of having such a thing. I, if you're going to do it, then you might as well fund it. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole purpose of this is is to emphasize you know U.S. leadership. When I read reports like this, the more I I, I read this type of of sort of argument, I I think the argument has to be made that it really is important somehow that the U.S. maintain leadership outside of sort of these critical defense areas. Um, it's, I mean, it's if it's going to be good policy, so be it. But uh, the, you know, the way the commercial HPC we've seen sort of start to dominate uh, the public sector HPC, I, I think it's they're sort of going in two different directions, and um, I think the report goes to a certain degree does sort of explain that, but it doesn't really, I think, make the case why commercial HPC is going to really uh, be that much better because the U.S. in itself is is number one, at least U.S. companies as far as that goes. So um, in a sense, this is sort of a throwback to sort of an earlier time where we used to talk about it, where 
the, the extreme scale systems were the most important systems and everybody sort of relied on them. That, that no longer is true. Yeah, and we see great uh, innovation come into the industry at, at all levels, from entry level up to supercomputer. And now, now with regard to U.S. leadership in supercomputing, whether you believe we're currently the leaders or not or want to maintain it or not, that has everything to do with the exascale plans for the United States, which is our other story this week in HPC, because coincidentally, there's an update to the DOE timeline for U.S. exascale initiatives. Right, and this was put forward by this path forward technical requirements document. It's actually a draft document, which looks like sort of a pre-RFP type of uh, document, letting vendors know what, what they expect and what the timeline is. Yeah, laying down the ground rules, as it were. Yeah, and, and what they've basically said here is they're looking, they're now looking to start funding for their first exascale systems um, in, in around 2019 with the first systems to be deployed now in the 2023 timeframe. And to the best of my recollection, that is the furthest out I've ever seen anybody recommend anything. And this is, while, while not an official document, it's still a draft. I, I, I get the impression it's, it's sort of slipped once again. The, the latest I remember is sort of a 2022 timeframe where people thought they would get the first DOE exascale systems out. And now it's out to 2023 as the very first one with 2023 to 2025 as sort of the first clutch of exascale systems for the DOE. Yeah. And, you know, let's let's be clear that this is not leadership in the sense of at least the race to an exaflop, although you can go ahead and argue about whether an exaflop is true exascale. But, you know, personally, I, I think that those things have started to become more synonymous and that as soon as you get people running at an exaflop, people are going to, you know, I don't think there are going to be too many people who say that's not exascale if you have an exaflop, particularly if right. you come up with an application. And uh, 2023, to me, is no better than third and quite likely fourth. Uh, we've talked on this podcast about Japan's plans that could be there in uh, no later than 2020. France uh, has been talking about 2020 with Bull. And, uh, and China keeps upgrading their pre-exascale systems. And we don't have a really good sense of exactly what year. But yeah, I, I would lay odds that China's better, you know, faster than 2023. Yeah, I, I think China has, you know, a chance of, of even beating Japan. Um, we know so little about it, but the, they are or they have been very aggressive. And I think, you know, we'll we'll see maybe over the next year or two, even maybe as soon as next month, uh, if if they've taken the next step to move forward to a, a pre-exascale type system. Um, yeah, 2023 seems like uh, we're going to be sort of behind the curve here. Now, that doesn't say anything about sort of the aggregate number of systems that are that are going to be top systems for the U.S. But to to be to be so far down, even even to get number three in the exascale race, would seem like a big uh, setback for the for the U.S. Uh, potentially number four. For that matter, T-Platforms has unveiled architecture plans that could get them there before 2023. I don't think they'll have got funding for that plan. Well, yeah, but could, you, could you imagine the U.S. being behind Russia in this? Uh, that, that, would be, uh, that would be a big scandal. I don't, I don't think, uh, unless Russia makes a, you know, a push towards that, that, 
that would happen, but certainly that would, at the level of policy and, and policy making, that uh, that would raise a lot of eyebrows. Yeah, T platforms and I think RSC have has also been uh, involved in that discussion, but I didn't mean to exclude one over the other. That that comes down to a question of funding more than it does uh, the architecture and the technology. I, I guess right. my point is, I think that by 2023. Any number of companies could be fielding exascale-capable computers. That doesn't feel like, uh, you know, U.S. leadership to me. No, and I think, right, there's going to be a bunch of vendors that are going to have systems that could be scaled up to exascale by, by 2020. Whether, whether this funding comes through or not to get the sort of non-recoverable engineering funding through to these companies or not, it's this is just the way the government funds some of these companies now. It's almost tradition. Uh, well, and another tradition is there's language in there about uh, two different architectures getting supported, which to to me looks like it's it's uh, you know that that's just to say for the pre exascale systems we'll fund an Intel x86 architecture and we'll fund something around open power. Right. Uh, it's it's hard to think about what what else that would be other than those two architectures. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But whether money goes to those groups or not, I think, you know, Cray, IBM, Intel, these guys, these guys are all going to be developing systems and components for exascale system, whether they get government money or not. Now, those systems might turn out to be different. They might not have the co-design features of a DOE system, but they'll have commercial systems just simply because uh, even the, the little competition they have outside of U.S.-based vendors are going to have when you talk about Bull and Fujitsu and and, and a couple others, like we talked about T-platforms. So it's it's not like uh, this plan or this money is going to, uh, is, is needed to make an exascale hardware offering. Um, it, it's just going to be part of the DOE uh, uh, strategy going forward to make a co-design system for what they could use more specifically. But it's it's going to be there whether it gets there in 2023 or not. Well, out of both of these stories, I'll reiterate that what I wish I'd read more about in either case was software. Uh, you know, the, the, to me, I think we've seen conclusively that if you really want to talk about efficient performance at scale, this is even more a software problem than it is a hardware problem. And I think the closer we get to it, the less people are talking about it. Yeah, and it's also one area where the U.S does maintain leadership and I think will maintain leadership uh, for the foreseeable future. It's, it's much harder to sort of manufacture software leadership than hardware leadership because it's uh, it, it's a more human scale problem there. So uh, yeah, when you talk about US leadership or any nation's leadership in HPC, it is dependent upon you know the application software and and the, uh, the tool software that gets it there. And I think uh, the U.S. is still the leader in that area, and I think it's going to be that way for the next uh, five years as we go into the exascale era. Well, it's a lot to talk about, and we've got years more to talk about it. As, <laughs> as, we, as we've as we've said, it is an interesting paper. I recommend anybody look it up on uh, the uh, ITIF website or in your favorite HPC publication. Look at your favorite Twitter handles. Uh, out there, you'll find a copy of the full report. It is worth a read, as well as the refinement of the uh, DOE US Exascale plan. There's a lot to digest, but we'll keep our eye on it. Definitely. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. 
You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.